Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, and we just thank you for your, for your love and your grace. And I just thank you for the fact that your, your word is so relevant to every one of us today. And even when we look at these Old Testament sacraments of, of purification, that, Lord, they still can have an impact on our lives, Father God, if we'll just respond in obedience to what your Holy Spirit wants us to do. And, Father, I pray that tonight you would be our teacher, that we would be receptive, Father God, to what you want to minister to our hearts. Through it all, Lord, may you be glorified. We just thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. First ten chapters of Leviticus, we talked about the fact that it really emphasized the worship of the Lord. And it talked about all the different um, sacrifices that needed to be made to restore sinful man back to holy God. And we talked about all the different sacrifices and what they meant. I'm not going to go into detail on those, but it was awesome just to see the clear picture of Christ in every single one of them. And then we got to chapter 11 last week, and we moved from the worship of God to walking with God. And, we're, and for the next five chapters, we're really going to be looking at what are called laws of purification. And I know a lot of you, when you read these, these Old Testament laws of purification, especially since they don't even apply to us anymore for the most part, you look at them and think, why do we even go through these things? Because first of all, God did away with them, and, and you know what, they don't even apply to us anymore, but the reality is, yes, they do apply to us. And if they're in the Bible, they're in there for a reason. And tonight, I had planned on teaching two chapters, because the first one's only eight verses, but guess what? 26 pages into my notes and, and on eight verses, guess how many verses we're looking at tonight, Lord willing. We're going to look at one chapter, chapter 12. And when you first read it again, you're going to look at it and think, well, what has this got to do with me? And I promise, Lord willing, by the time you leave, hopefully you'll see very clearly. Now, last week we looked at the first law of purification, and that was the difference between unclean and clean in the area of diet. And we talked about the fact that God does indeed care about what we eat. Right, Pat? Okay. Just check. And I knew she'd say amen. That's why I called on her. So God, God does care about what we eat. And we talked about last week how he gave them these clean and unclean animals. And there was a reason. One, for protection for them. Because most of the things that, they, that were unclean, if they ate them, especially in those days before refrigeration and before the, the cooking methods we have, it would kill you. you know? So God said, you know, don't be eating any camels. And don't be chewing on any bats. And for the most part, we had no problem with that last week, right? You know, no gecko omelets or anything like that. We were good with it. And so, but we saw very clearly that there was also, along with the protection for Israel, it was also a call for them to be separate from the world. That the world would eat these things were offered to false idols. And God was telling them, look, I'm giving these dietary restrictions, one, because I love you and I know what's best for your health, but also because you're to be in the world but not of the world. And remember Daniel as a young man in his teens, ripped from his home and dragged away to Babylon. And when he came in, he, thought, he could have thought that he was going to be killed or, or put to work as a slave. And instead, they, br they brought this food out before him, and he was going to serve as a wise man to the king. And what did he do instead? He said, you know what, I'm not eating this stuff because the law of Moses forbids it. Now, you can imagine that maybe some of the other Israelites over there were like, Daniel, shut up, man. They're bringing us food. They're not putting us in a, in a mine to be slaves. They're not killing us like they slaughtered the people when they captured us. But he said, you know what? I'm going to honor God with the food that I eat because this is what the law of Moses says. And so not only was it for the protection of their own health, but also that they would be set apart in the world but not of the world. And then lastly, last week, we saw that he gave them the different food to eat as an illustration for both them and for us today. Because we're no longer under dietary restrictions. And I want to say this again, as I said last week. God does care about what we eat, but we need to make sure that we're not 
so pro whatever diet we've got, you know, I'm all about eating, you know, nothing but meat and cheese, right, Joe? Okay? And you might say, dude, if you eat anything but meat and cheese, you're an idiot, right? And you might be a vegetarian saying, man, all you should be eating is vegetables. And if you're eating, you know, killing animals, you know, the Lord said, rice, kill, and eat. So I don't want to hear about killing animals. God told us to. And by the way, meat is good, right? So <laughs> praise God for meat, right? But here's the thing. Through all this, God wanted to teach them something about how they lived their lives. And the kind of animals that they were allowed to eat, there was two specific things about them. And I'm going through this because I want you to see how it ties into the next chapter. The, first, the two things that they had to have was they had to have a cloven hoof and they had to chew their cud. And at the first look at that, you think, okay, what has that got to do with anything, especially with me here and now? But remember that a cloven hoof was divided. And I believe that that points to the way that the animals walked. And they had to have a divided or a set-apart walk, a picture of cleanliness being those who are divided and set apart. And when you look up the word chewing the cud, guess what it means? We talked about it last week. What does it mean in the original language? What's the word? To meditate. And so not only did you have a, have a divided walk, but you needed to be one who meditated on the word. So the clean animals were those with a divided hoof and that chewed the cud, meditated, regurgitated over and ate it over and over and over again, the way that we are to be with the word of God. And we talked about the fact that those that were only had a divided hoof but did not chew the cud, they were not to eat those. Those were animals like a, like a swine, okay? Then there were those that chewed the cud but didn't have a divided hoof like a camel. They weren't to eat those either. And if they'd eaten either one of them, it would have been detrimental to their health. But I think that's also a picture in that if the animal had a divided walk, divided and set apart walk, but did not meditate on the word in a sense, there are those who who live moral lives but don't know the Lord. Amen? There are people that are very moral from the world's perspective, but they don't have a relationship with Almighty God. Then there are those who spend time in the, world, in the Word but live like the world, right? You know, the Bible says to be not just hearers of the Word, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Amen? And so it must be both a divided walk and those who meditate on the Word. If you're just one or the other, they were unclean animals. And as I told you last week, the word for unclean is unacceptable. You know, Jesus said, or it says in Romans, There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is all about our walk. Let us walk becomingly as in the day, not in carousings and drinking, not in cohabitation and lustful acts, not in strife and envy. And it says in Galatians, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You want to have a, a life that has an impact on the world, have a life that's set apart and divided in your walk, just like the clean animals in Leviticus 11. But not only must your walk be set apart and divided and walking in holiness, but you must meditate on the Word. It says in Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written. It says in Psalm 1, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So, God's called us not just to be moral people. If you could just be moral and go to heaven, then the Mormons would be going, Right? If you could just do good acts, there's a lot of people out there working their way to heaven. And from the world's perspective, they're very moral. But they do not know the God of the Word. Amen? They don't know Jesus Christ. They don't have an intimate relationship with Him. And so we need to have that divided, set-apart life, but we need to be meditating on His Word day and night. I want to encourage you with something. Start memorizing Scripture. Amen? You know what? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by 
the Word of God. And you know what? We need to be spending time in God's Word and, and meditating on God's Word and memorizing God's Word so that we might live divided walks that are meditating on His Word. And we might be people that are not just uh, hearers of the Word, but doers also. And so that was the first act of purification was for these animals. But again, all these animals pointed toward our walk. There was something that was a picture for us. Remember the birds that were not to be eaten. What kind of birds were they? What kind of birds were they? Remember? The bunch of scavengers. They, they picked the dead flesh. And God said, you know what? Don't touch them. And he said, we're not to touch dead carcasses. Don't go near the dead things. Well, here's the reality. The Bible says that we're either alive in Christ or we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That means if you are hanging out with people that don't know God, you're hanging out with dead people. Amen? Hey, as a youth pastor for years, I used to tell kids in the youth group, if you're dating someone who doesn't know God, it'd be like dragging a, 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 you know, a corpse into your living room, dressed in a tux, and say, Mom, I want you to meet my prom date, right? I mean, that's foolishness. And nobody would ever, if you did that, they'd, they'd take you away in a paddy wagon, man. But here's the reality. As Christians, we hang out with the world, and he said, don't touch any unclean thing. Now, do we have a love for them? Absolutely. Do we have a burden to see them come to know Christ? Absolutely. Do we look down upon them and say, well, I'm alive and you're a dead guy and you stink? No, we don't do that, right? We love them. We have a burden for them. But we're to be in the world and not of the world. We're to have no fellowship with it. We're to minister to them, but not have fellowship with them. And so we come tonight to the next chapter, and we're going to move from the, the purification of the food situation, and now we're going to talk about childbirth. Now, it's interesting as I was studying these little eight verses, how much God showed me. Incredible. I even had someone say to me, I read that chapter, there's nothing in there, right? Well, if it's in the Bible, you know you're wrong, right? Amen? In eight verses, there's a lot of good stuff. I promise you, the Bible is thick. And so tonight, as we continue to look, we're going to move on to this, this picture now of uncleanness in childbirth. And what we're really going to see from it is the depravity of all mankind. That every single person is a sinner. So I titled the message tonight, Born in Sin. And so the first half, we're going to look at the uncleanness in childbirth, and then we're going to see the answer to the depravity of man in the atoning work of the cross, the atonement through sacrifice, the restoration of fellowship. So let's begin in verse 1, and tonight we're going to be looking at quite a few things, but just bear with me. Look at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. Now, what did the Lord command them back in Genesis to do? What did he say to them? What did he say to Adam and Eve? Go therefore what? Go therefore and multiply. Wasn't it his command that said, Go therefore and multi multiply? It says in Genesis 1, So God created man and woman in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, the, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Now then you get to Psalms, and it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. You know there's only two offensive weapons in the Bible? What are they? What's the first one? You go to the armor. What is, what's the only offensive weapon? The sword, which is a picture of what? The Word of God. The other offensive weapon are these arrows. I believe that if God tarries, the offensive weapon is we are shooting our children into the next generation. 
We're shooting them into the next generation that they might minister God's truth in an offensive way to the generation that's to come. If the Lord tarries and I leave, my prayer above all else is that my children will walk in the truth, that they'll love the Lord, and they'll be preaching the same gospel that I do. Amen? That they'll have the same love for God. And so we see here, it's saying, happy is the man who's got a quiver full of them. In my case, the quiver is four, okay? That's how many the Lord allowed us to have. We would have had more. And I have a burden, and I have a love. I love it when Christian families have kids. Man, I, I, love, I love doing baby dedications. You know why? Because I know those kids are going to get taught the truth of God's word. I know that they're going to be taught the love of God. There's nothing greater in the world you can do than minister to children the truth of God's word. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And so he, so he said, be fruitful and multiply. And then he said, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. These sound like encouraging words. It says in the Bible that he is the one that opens and closes the womb. So if in obedience to God's command, I'm having children, why then is this woman unclean in childbirth? This makes no sense. He told us to be fruitful, multiply. He said, blessed is the man whose quiver is full, that God opens and closes the womb. And then it says, when a woman has a child, she bears him in uncleanness. And now we're going to have to go through these rituals of purification when we've walked in obedience to what God told us to do and we're having the children he told us to have. How can this be? How does this make any sense? Let me tell you the answer. It's found in Genesis 3. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? He's speaking to Eve right after she bit the, into the forbidden fruit. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Then the woman, to the woman, he said in verse 16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain. You shall bring forth children. So when you're screaming during child labor, it's all Eve's fault, right? So the Lord said, he said, because of, because of the sin of Eve, now you're going to bring forth children in sorrow and in anguish and in pain. And so because of the sin of, of Eve, every child that was born ever, Outside of Adam and Eve themselves being created by God, every child was born what? A what? A sinner. And so, even though God said, be fruitful, multiply, do you know he said that before they fell into the temptation with Satan? Do you know that? But he also told them, happy is a man whose quiver is full. And he's talking about how blessed it is to have children. It is an awesome and a wonderful thing, but guess what? With having children is going to come some difficulty and some sorrow and some pain and some struggle. And the Lord said, because of the fact that the woman had sinned. It says in Psalm 51, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So though in fulfillment to do what God has called us to do, there's going to be pain in childbirth, and every birth would add another sinner to the world. Now, I've got a, uh, I've got a really cute niece. Most of you have seen her. Jordan, right? She's six months old. Now that is, she's a pretty cute kid, right? I know I'm biased. She's my niece. But she just is adorable. And you look at her and you think, Man, she is, she's perfect. No, she's a stinking, vile sinner. I'm glad Steph's not here. But she's a stinking, vile sinner. And every one of our children, they come out and we think they're so, pre and they are precious. And they're a gift from God. And they're the most wonderful blessing in the world. But they're sinners. And they're in desperate need of a Savior. And so when the woman gave birth, the reason that there needed to be a cleaning, or she became unclean, is because she gave birth to a sinful being. And what this is all pointing to, and it's pointing to to the woman that back in those days when they would have children was that we are sinners in desperate need of cleansing. That from the moment of conception, that's what David said in Psalms, I was conceived in sin. He's not talking about the fact that his mom and dad came together. He's talking about when I was 
this big in my mother's womb, I was already a sinner. That's what the Bible tells us. We were sinful from conception. Now, people try to say, oh, no, my, my baby's not a sinner. No, yeah, give them, a, give them a little time. Let them start crawling and see what kind of sinners they are, right? The reality is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, every single one of us. So sinners from the moment of conception, they have the, the nature of Adam. They're born in total depravity. Now, what do we do today when a baby's born? In those days, when a baby was born, the first thing that happens, as we see here, is they, was, they were declared unclean. The woman could not come into contact with anybody for seven days. She would be locked away in her home. She would be caring for her baby, and she could touch no one, go near any, couldn't go near anybody. Now, we have babies today, you know, you show up with flowers and balloons and, you know, bubblegum cigars and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And we have this huge celebration over having a child because we should, because they're a gift from God. But in those days, they had an understanding that though it was a joyful moment, that the mother was now unclean, she was unable to fellowship or worship, that sacrifices had to be made, again, to understand the depravity of their children. Now, I'm going to take a moment. I want to talk to you about this. I promise we'll get right back to the text. But I want to talk to you about this. What does it do when we understand the depravity of man? What should it do to us as people? How should we be changed? First of all, let me talk to you parents out there and you future parents. Those of you who might not have kids yet, you're not even planning on it yet. But if God calls you one day, you will. I want to encourage you with something. Your children, because of the depravity of man, are sinful. And when you understand that, that should change the way that you raise your children. Amen? Understanding that they are sinners. As wonderful as they are, as much as you love them, your children need to be disciplined. Nobody has to teach a kid to lie. Nobody has to teach a kid to be selfish. You don't ever come and say, come here, let me show you. Now, when your brother takes your toy, rip it out of his hand and say, mine. Now, let's do that again. Rip it out. Okay, do it one more time. We don't have to do that, but yet our kids do that, right? You know why? Because they're born in sin and total depravity. It's all about me, right? When I'm 18 months old, it's all about me. Get me! I don't, you know what I mean? And I'm thinking about me. So I don't have to teach my kids to sin. They're born sinning right out of the chute. They've got it. They know what they're doing, right? They, they cry. They scream. They want. I've seen babies throw temper tantrums when they're just a few months old. Have you ever seen a baby do that? Already. Oh, there it is. A damning nature. There it is. A damning nature at work. You see it already. Now, it's interesting. When they do that, when they throw a fit, when they're rebellious, when they lie, when they're selfish, they're acting according to their nature. God has called us to pray for them that they would be born again, and to, they need to have their nature transformed. We don't have to teach them to lie. We don't have to teach them to be selfish. But we do need to teach them to be kind, to be loving. It's interesting. I was in the grocery store just yesterday. This was, I, I wish I had a video camera because this is a beautiful picture. This little girl is probably about 18 months old, and she's in the cart. And she keeps trying to stand up in the cart. And, and her mom and dad are both telling her to not stand up in the cart, because if she stands up in the cart, she's going to fall over and hurt herself. This is a checkout stand. Finally, the mom and dad are, like, moving some stuff out to the cart, and the girl's standing there, and she starts standing up. And the checker says to her, now, sweetheart, you're going to fall down and get hurt. Don't stand up. And as soon as she said that, the little girl stood up, got up on her tiptoes, put her arms like this, and looked at her and went, <clears throat> And I went, Adamic nature. <laughs> there it is. Nobody taught her to be rebellious. She's just rebellious. I'm thinking, here she is going, you can't tell me nothing, right? 18 months old, 
right? Now, usually what happens is they do a head or backflip off the back and crack your head open. I mean, that's what happens a lot of times, right? But you're just standing there in rebellion. And that's a picture of our children. That's a picture of the world born in total depravity. So as parents, what has God called us to do? Is there a plan? What do we do with these children that are born this way? Since we don't have to teach them how to sin. The Bible says in Proverbs, and again, real clear from the Bible, Proverbs 22, foolishness or rebellion is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. It doesn't say the rod of timeouts, right? It doesn't say, have them go sit in the corner and write a letter about what they did. You know, it's called child rearing for a reason. Amen? You know what I'm saying? God gave them some padding back here, and there's nothing wrong with applying the proper pressure at the proper moment. Amen? You want to see your kids' lives transformed. When they sin, there needs to be a consequence. Amen? We're teaching them at a young age. If you're selfish, it's going to hurt. If you're angry, it's going to hurt. At my house, we have a, a breadboard, and it says on it, the Johnston's Board of Education. That's what it is. It's the Board of Education. Now, not that my kids are perfect, because any of you have hung out with them, you know that's not true, right? But here's the reality, that when they, when they blow it, there needs to be consequences to sin. And those consequences, now I want to say this, we should spank our children, because that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that if we spare the rod, we hate our child. That's what the Bible says. You hate them if you won't discipline them. You're going to hate how they turn out, I promise you, if you don't discipline them. I go out to Little League fields, and I see some kids who I know aren't getting disciplined. They're out on the mound, and they've got these attitudes. You're like, that kid needs a swat, right? And mom and dad over there, well, you know, he's just being himself. Yeah, you're right. He is being himself. He's acting according to his nature. He's totally depraved. He's got the Adamic nature, and that kid needs a swat, right? And I want to encourage you, we need to spank our kids, but always do it in love. Amen? Don't be spanking your kids in anger. We don't bruise them, and we don't beat them. Amen? We swat them. And we will drive that behavior far from them. You know what the Bible says? Those who the Lord loves, he what? He chastens. You ever been swatted by God? Raise your hand, you've been swatted by God. Okay. He loves you. <laughs> Amen? Now, when, when I swat my kids, sometimes they're not real happy with Dad for a few minutes. Right? Sometimes they, 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 I'm the last guy they want hugging on them. Right? But the reality is that I believe when I spank my kids and I discipline my kids, it lets them know that I do love them, I do care about them, and I'm more concerned about their behavior than being popular with them right now. Amen? I'm more concerned about who they're going to be when they're 18 years old than them having to think I'm the easiest going dad around. Right? You know what? Our kids need to be disciplined. They need to be, and so do we when we walk away from God. I want to say this, though, and then we'll move on to the next verse. It's easier to ignore it and do nothing. The easiest thing to do as a parent it's to, first of all, don't threaten your kids. Threats are weak. Don't threaten your kids. Spank your kids. Amen? Discipline your kids. If I, you do that one more time, how does that, does that work, by the way? How many parents does that work? You do that one more time, kids are like, oh, okay, well, I'm not getting a swat. I'm going to keep, if kid, kids are gamblers by nature, if they can do it, if they get swatted nine out of ten times, they'll just keep doing it. Because, it, oh, it might be the one in ten. I'm not going to get in trouble. That's how kids are. I don't threaten my kids. I just say, Okay, that's it. In the kitchen. Oh, that's not good. They know what that means. Oh, then they're already alibying. No, that's it. That's it. If you got me to the point, in the kitchen, right? You stupid. Oh, stupid. Did you say? Oh, kitchen. Oh, they know what's coming. But the reality is, always do it in love. And it's to, to, have, to drive that Adamic nature far from them. To drive that depravity far from them. 
And sadly, what we see in the world today is psychologists saying, no, we need to esteem our kids more. They just don't have enough self-esteem. Stop it. My kids esteem themselves way too much. Amen? My kids are thinking, you know, I, how about you? I'm always on my mind. How about you? Right? You're thinking about yourself way too stinking much already. And we need, oh, we need to esteem them more. We just need to tell them how wonderful they are. No, we need to tell them, that's wrong. You're a sinner. You're in trouble. Kitchen. Right? And grab the board of education on your way in there. I'll be right there, right? I mean, there needs to be discipline because that's what will drive this behavior from them. There needs to be consequences to sin. We have a, a whole generation with no knowledge of right or wrong. We've got a whole generation. I was a youth pastor long enough. Kids who cussed out their parents. I've seen parent, kids flipping off their parents at Little League games. I want to jump over the fence and swat them myself. What? Come here. Give me that ear, right? I mean, what is that all about? But what happens is, they've never been disciplined. There is no right or wrong. And you know what? They're in total depravity. And there's no consequences for their sin. Understanding total depravity ought to change the way we discipline our kids. It also ought to change the way we see our, our fellow man. When people at work act like sinners, don't be surprised. Amen? My boss is such a jerk, man. He was, does he know the Lord? No. Then why are you shocked? Oh, I don't know. He's acting according to his nature. When the next door neighbor's dog barks, are you shocked? No, because dogs bark, right? And sinners sin. Amen? And people that don't know God are going to act according to their nature. And so when we see someone acting out of control, we ought to look and say, man, that guy needs the Lord. I need to pray for him. When you say, you know what? Jesus died for that guy. Jesus suffered and died for that guy that he might have eternal life. Jesus would rather die than live without him. And God put me in his life for a reason. The Lord, let me, have, let me love on him and share with him the love of God. You know what? He's acting like the world. Should I return by acting like the world? The Bible says we don't overcome evil with evil. We overcome evil with good. Amen? A soft answer turns away wrath. Lastly, it should also impact the way we look at ourselves. We should realize that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Amen? We've been born again but we still battle between the Spirit and the flesh. Amen? And only when we walk in the Spirit will we not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We need to understand that we were born in total depravity. If I hear somebody tell me, that guy's a good man one more time, I'm going to yak. Okay? Oh, he's a really good man. Compared to what? Compared to Osama bin Laden? Yeah, pretty good guy. Right? Adolf Hitler? Yeah, pretty good. Right? Compared to Jesus Christ, how's he doing? Oh, not too good. There's none righteous, no, not one. Amen? We are born in depravity. So we need to understand that in the way we discipline our kids, in the way that we view our co-workers and people around us, and the way we look at ourselves. And so that's what this was all about, was that they give birth to a child, and now you're unclean immediately. Okay, you're ceremonially unclean. You cannot go into worship. You cannot go into the sanctuary. You must be set apart, and you must go through purification before you can come near another person. It's letting them know that through childbirth, you're giving birth, it's beautiful, but you're giving birth to a sinner. Amen? Every child born is a sinner in need of a Savior. Now look what it says there in verse 2. And it says, Of the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. The customary impurity is talking about her monthly menstruation cycle. Every time they had their period, they were unclean. Every time. Thanks, Eve. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah, I'd love, to go to, I'd love to go to church today, but I'm ceremonially unclean. Thanks a lot, Eve. So I get to stay home. And that's what would happen. As they would realize that sin had consequences, and this was all in preparation for birthing a child, right? That's the reason that this cycle exists, is for childbearing. 
And because the child was going to be sinful, even the very act of what was in preparation for that was sin. And they said, you're unclean. You can't touch anybody. You can't go near anybody. And so when you had a child, you were ceremonially unclean for seven days, and it didn't end there, as we're going to see in a minute. It's going to move on. Now it says, after the, this, this customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So when you had a male child, when you had a boy, you were unclean for seven days. You couldn't go out of your house. And then on the eighth day, you took your son down to be circumcised. Now, why did they circumcise their babies? You guys remember going, now, yeah, why did they circumcise them? What's up with that, right? But the reason that they did it, there's several reasons why. First of all, it was the cutting of the way of the flesh because the son was born in uncleanness. But what did the circumcision mean to the parents? Every time they changed the baby, every time they did anything with their son, they realized that his life was marked and set apart for God. This child's been dedicated to the Lord. We've given him to God. He belongs to God. He's not like the Gentile kids. Only those that are children of Israel went through circumcision. And so they were different than the world. And they were marked in a very personal way. It was known to their parents. And so their parents would remind it every single time as he was a baby. He's been set apart. He's been marked by God. We've dedicated him to the Lord. When he got older, it was assigned to his wife. When they got married, in those days, they, you know, they had betrothal period and they didn't touch each other until wedding night. And you know, when they got married, it was a, it was a sign that he truly is one of the children of Israel. He's truly one of God's set-apart kids. They knew that they were not being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, right? Because only kids who have been set apart to serve God had this happen to them. And then lastly, to the man himself, it was a daily testimony that he was set apart to serve God. Now, this is a very personal thing, obviously. Now, the mom would seven days of uncleanness, then take her son down, and he would be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, why the eighth day? It's been said that in those days, prior to the eighth day, if they circumcised a child, he would bleed to death. Now, now they deal with that by, they give him vitamin K shots, and their blood coagulates easier, and they don't have this problem, okay? But back in those days, that's what they said. But at the same time, it was really because the mom was unclean for seven days and couldn't leave the house. And then after that time of uncleanness, she would take her child down and dedicate him to the Lord. All of this is what is it pointing to? It's pointing to the depravity of her child. It's saying, look, my son, my son is in the flesh. He needs to be marked by God. There needs to be ceremonial cleansing. And we need to take this kid to the Lord. From day one, we need to understand his need. Under verse 4, it says, She shall then continue in, in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are fulfilled. So when she had a son, for seven days she had to remain in her home, go near no one. Then after that, for 33 more days, she could not enter into fellowship and she could touch no holy or consecrated thing. Forty days. Forty in the Bible is a number of what? Testing. Where do we see forty? All over the Bible. Noah. How many days did it rain? Forty. Children of Israel. How many years did they wander in the wilderness? Moses, presence in Sinai. How many days was he up on Sinai getting the Ten Commandments from the Lord? The answer is 40 to all these questions, by the way. David and Goliath. How many days did, did Goliath come marching down the Valley of Elah? Those of you who go to Israel with us, you'll see this place, right? He'd come out and, and, and march down. He would present himself before the, all, the, all the armies of Israel and say, I defy you, right? 
You come out and battle against me, and if you defeat me, then we will, all the Philistines will serve you. But if I defeat your champion, then you all serve us. And for 40 days and 40 nights, every time he went down there, what happened? All the Israelites went and ran, ran away. And then some little kid named David, delivering cheese to his brother, shows up with a slingshot and says, Who's this uncircumcised, here, I'm circumcision. Here's, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against my God, right? This guy's not been marked by God. He didn't see a guy who was 11 foot 750 who could, you know, slam dunk shack. He didn't see that guy as being him against a little guy. He saw this puny man against Almighty God. And what did he do? He went down and we know what happened. But this number of testing, it was a number of preparation. It was a number for her to be still and wait upon the Lord. It was a number for her to realize that she was in desperate need to be cleansed and to be purified. And you know what? That's the best thing that we can understand, is that we are in desperate need of being cleansed by God. Amen? We must be touched by Him. We must be purified by Him. And so the woman, 40 days she had to wait. And finally, at the end of that time, she would go and we'll see, make sacrifice. Now what if the child was a female? Verse 8. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks. Instead of seven days, 14 days, can't leave the house, can't go anywhere, can't touch anybody, can't do anything. Why? Because of the depravity of the child that she's given birth to. And then it says, as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification for 66 days. So it was 40 days for a, a, a male child and 80 days for a female child. So if you had a, a female child, you spent twice as long. Man, there's way too many jokes there, but I'm not going to do it. Okay, but it was twice as long to get to the point of being purified where you could leave your house again. Now, there's several reasons why people, one, think that maybe it points to the fact that the boy was, con was uh, circumcised and the girl was not, and that took a, away a part of that purification process. I believe that it points to the fact that Eve was deceived in the garden. I believe that it points to the fact that she was to be submitted to her husband and, and she was deceived in the garden and because of it that the amount of time of purification was longer. And so 80 days. So you had a baby. You were not taking your daughter around to show everybody till the baby was almost three months old. Now again, this could have some health benefits in a way, right? If you've got to keep your child away for 40 days or 80 days from other people, you know, we don't have like antibiotics and stuff like back in the day, right? So it might, God's way of, of watching over and protecting the child, at the same time, it was a way of realizing the depravity of that child. That that child was a sinner and there needed to be cleansing. Cleansing for both the mom and the child. Again, the total depravity of all of mankind. Now, it's interesting, as I was looking at this this afternoon, both the physical and the spiritual birth require bloodshed. When you're born physically, how many, how many of you have either given birth to a child or been in a room while someone's given birth to a child? Raise your hand. I've been in there four times. A lot of blood. Is that true or not? Oh, a lot of blood, right? Is there pain in childbirth? You don't want to be holding my wife's hand. Oh! Broken fingers with every contraction, right? You know, and, and getting in trouble. You did this to me, right? You know, that kind of thing. But squeezing my hand and a lot of pain in childbirth and a lot of blood, right? And it's interesting. There's blood and there's pain. There's also some sorrow and there's some weeping and crying out. But in the end, what is produced? Blessing. Amen? There's a flow of blood. There's a great deal of pain. There's even some sorrow. And then in the end, it results in blessing. 
It's also interesting that in this text, there's also uncleanness, right, from giving birth to the child. What does this sound like to you? What does it sound like? The cross. Physical birth, there was the flow of blood, there was physical pain, there was sorrow, there was uncleanness, and then there was blessing. But you know what? When Jesus died on the cross, they whipped him and they beat him, and there was pain. Amen? And then they hung him on the cross, and the Bible says he was acquainted with our sorrows and grief. Amen? And there was sorrow in his heart. And then he was crucified, and on the cross, the Bible says that the, the, the Father laid upon him the iniquities of us all. Amen? There was a moment or a time of uncleanness as the sin of all mankind was placed upon our Savior. And then there was that incredible flow of blood again as he died on the cross, but in the end, what did it result in? Three days later, what happened? He rose from the dead. Amen? And there was incredible blessing. And so when we look at childbirth, I see the cross. Amen? When you look at all that happens for physical birth, you see all that was necessary for spiritual rebirth. Amen? How do you, get, how do you come into this life? You're born. How do you get to heaven? You're born again. Amen? How do you come to know Christ in an intimate and personal way? You must not just be born of the flesh, which we all were. We must be born of the Spirit. And so when we see this physical birth and all that goes into it, it's a clear picture to me of the torment that our Savior went through on the cross, but the blessing that comes out of it. You know, it's a good thing that God gives women amnesia when it comes to childbirth, or everyone would have one kid, right? My wife had 14 hours of back labor with Ashley. I'm thinking, oh, we're done. I better be happy with this one, right? But the reality is that, I mean, weeks later, we were talking, oh, man, we should have another. You know what I mean? Because it is a blessing. There's difficulty and struggle. All the women are like, they don't have kids. are going, what? I, I, you know what? I'm, adoption, I'm thinking. <laughs> sound, I mean, we could be charitable. We could reach out to some foreign, you know. Hey, that, and if you know if God calls you to adopt, do it, okay? But the Lord told you to be fruitful and multiply, and that still applies to us in this room tonight. So we see here the, the spiritual rebirth along with the, the physical birth. So the, the blessing that comes through this difficulty as we become new creations in Christ and are born again, it, it was only through the shedding of blood that there's physical birth, and only through the shedding of blood there can be spiritual rebirth. Now, what's great about this little eight-verse chapter is these last three verses give the answer to the depravity of man. We see the clear depravity of man in verses 1 through 5. We see the, the uncleanness. We see the separation. And now these last three verses, we're going to sum it up with the answer to the, entire, to the problem that, that faces them, the atoning work. Look at verse 6. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now, as soon as her 40 days or 80 days were up, the first act that she had to do when she left her house with this child, was she had to go straight to the tabernacle and bring with her a sacrifice. Why? Because she was still unclean. Because of giving birth to sin, in a sense. Right? And she needed to be cleansed for her sin. Notice she didn't have to do 75 laps around Jerusalem. And to be made clean, she needed to do 75 laps around Jerusalem. She needed to invite 150 people to the synagogue on Pacapu uh, Sabbath, Right? I mean, it wasn't some good work that she had to do to somehow to get back in right standing before God. In so many places today, it's, well, you must do 27 hours of witnessing. You must keep these 252 laws. You must do this, and then you'll be back in right standing before God. No, that's not it. 
She was defiled. She was impure. So what did she need? She needed a sacrifice. Amen? Firstborn spotless lamb. Picture of Jesus Christ. Who's the lamb of God? Jesus Christ. Now we know that when we went back and we looked at the, the burnt offering, what did they do to a burnt offering? But again, those of you, some of you are new, I'm going to take just a moment. They would bring that little lamb in, and typically they would keep it in their house for four or five days to make sure that the lamb was pure. They didn't want to bring a lamb that was sick. And if the, if the, if the lamb was yakking in your house, then you couldn't bring it for a sacrifice, okay? It needed to be a perfect lamb, a whole lamb. And then they would take this little lamb that the kids had been petting, right? And they would dr bring it down to the tabernacle, and they literally would hold it in their hand. How many of you ever pet a sheep before, or a lamb? Cute animals, really dumb, by the way. But you hold them in your hand, and their big sheep eyes just looking at you, you know. I've petted lambs before. And they'd hold that, the lamb in their hand, and they'd look at the lamb and realize, this lamb's going to die because of my sin. This lamb's done nothing wrong. This lamb is perfect. This lamb would live a long life. This lamb would, you know, but you know what? Because of my sin, this lamb's got to die. Then they would hold the lamb in their hand, they would take out a knife, and they would slit its throat. And it didn't end there. For a burnt offering, they didn't have to skin the animal, cut all of its skin off. Then they cut it into pieces. Then they would sacrifice a portion of it, and then they would take its carcass and bring it outside of the city gates and put it on an altar and burn it there. Now, those of you who've been here, what's all that a picture of? It's a picture of Christ. Jesus' blood was shed. They skinned it, just as they skinned our Savior when they scourged him. Remember, they tied him up and they took a, a, the whips and they whipped him to the point where there was virtually no skin left on his body and his organs were exposed. Then it says that they take it and they take that carcass outside of the, of the city and there they burn it. Now remember, we talked about this, that when we go to Jerusalem or Israel, those of you who go with us, you're going to find that Calvary is where? Right outside of the city. So just as they would take the sacrifice, the, the, what was left of it, and bring it outside of the city and there sacrifice it on the altar, so too they did with Jesus. They whipped him inside of the city. They scourged him inside of the city. They beat him. They mocked him. They spit in his face. They put the crown of thorns upon his head. Then they brought him outside of the city and there he made sacrifice. This burnt offering was a picture of Jesus. This total depravity of man, this uncleanness that came through giving birth to a sinful creation, only could be taken care of through a perfect holy sacrifice, a picture of Jesus Christ. And so it says there she would take it, and then a young pigeon for a sin offering. Now a sin offering, again, we, we talked about this last time, but a sin offering, they would, if it was a, a larger animal, they put their hand on its head to identify themselves with it, they'd bring it to the door of the tabernacle, then they would take its blood and sprinkle it seven times on the altar. Seven's the number of what in the Bible? Completeness or perfection, all right? Because when Jesus paid the price on the cross, he paid for all of it. Amen? The complete price was paid. And they would take that blood and sprinkle it seven times on the altar. Then they would take the, the blood on their fingertips and they would go out and put on the four horns that were on the burnt altar of burnt offering. Remember we talked about on the cross. How many points were on the cross? Four. Blood in all four spots when Jesus was crucified, right? Both his hands, at his feet, crown of thorns. Right? So when they're taking that blood and putting it on the four horns that they would use to tie down the animals when they sacrificed them, was the same picture of what happened when they nailed our Savior to the cross. So they would have the burnt offering, a picture of that firstborn spotless lamb, and the sin offering, the one who was taking our place, paying for our sin, and suffering and dying that we might have eternal life. 
What an awesome picture of the Lord. Verse 7. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Remember atonement. An easy way to remember is at one You know what? When we've been atoned for, we've been redeemed, justified, if you will. It's just as if we've never sinned. What happens is we're restored, restoring sinful man back to holy God. But only the priest could make atonement for her. Notice that she could not make atonement for herself. Why not? Who's the priest a picture of? Jesus Christ. Only the great high priest can pay the price for you. Just like I said before, you can't work hard enough, you can't do enough good things. God paid the price for you. So only he, only Jesus Christ, can do it. And so only the high priest, who is a picture of the Lord, could intercede on her behalf and make atonement for her. It says, And she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. This was required. There was no other way for cleansing. If she did not go through this ritual, she was never, ever, ever allowed to go back into the sanctuary or go into a place of fellowship ever again. Fellowship was broken forever unless she was cleansed. Isn't that a picture of what happens to us? When we sin, as sinners, there's broken fellowship between sinful man and holy God. Amen? But when we've been born again, what happens? We're put into a place of fellowship. We must be purified. We're born in total depravity. We were sinners saved by grace. Last verse, verse 8. And if she's not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a burnt offering, the other as a scent offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Now, only one thing I want you to see with this. Those who could not afford to bring a lamb would bring two turtle doves. When Joseph and Mary had Jesus, Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem, what did they bring as their offering on the eighth day? Turtle doves. What does that tell us about Mary and Joseph? Very poor. Very poor. These people don't run around telling you that Jesus, if he was alive today, would be driving a Rolls Royce. You ever heard that one? Okay. I don't think so. The Bible said he had no place to lay his head. You know what else it tells me? It tells me that Mary knew that she was a sinner. Right? Mary's coming to bring, to make sacrifice. Why? Because she knows that she's a sinner. And she needs to be restored in her fellowship. Now, her son was not a sinner, but she was. And so when people try to tell you, well, you know, Mary is co-redemptrix with Christ. Uh, no, no, she's not. Mary is a sinner in need of a Savior. Amen? Just like you and me. And Mary came and had to bring sacrifice just like any other woman would because she was a sinner. So in review, a man is born in sin in total depravity from birth. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You're sinners from the moment of conception. Every one of us. The fact that we're of total depravity should reveal to us our own need for redemption. It should make all of us realize how desperately we need the Lord. You can't be good enough on your own. It should impact how we raise our children. In that looking at them and realizing that if we leave them to, to their nature, they're going to end up like half of the world that we live in today. That there is no right and there is no wrong and do what you want and have an attitude and dishonor your parents and total depravity ought to impact how we raise our kids. It also ought to impact how we view others. That they're sinners that Jesus loves for, loves, loves, and he died for. And when we look at them and they're acting like they're totally depraved, we need to realize that they're acting according to their nature. Amen? Now as Christians, I want to close with this. We don't need to be that way. 
We are sinners saved by grace, but God desires that we walk in holiness. Amen? He said, be holy for I am holy. We need a desire to walk in holiness and to be set apart unto Him. So, may the Lord keep us in a place of desperation for Him. And you know what? Realizing, again, the total depravity of man just shows how desperately we need the Lord. Is Santa Cruz totally depraved? What's the answer? Yeah. Does it need Jesus? Yeah. We can't pass enough laws. We can't do enough good things. We need to cry out in desperation for the Lord to bring revival here. That's a prayer that will answer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, and we thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, Lord, that when we look and realize that we are sinful from birth, Lord, it just shows us that we are separated from a holy God and that we desperately need to be touched by you, that we need that purifying work through the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And Lord, I just pray for each one of us here, Lord, that as we see the total depravity of man, that it would trans- transform us in the way that we look at ourselves, that we are desperate for you. Though we've been made clean, Father God, and we're new creations in Christ, but Lord, may we realize it's all of you and not of our good works or anything we've done. Lord, may we look at the world in a different way. May it change the way that we raise our kids and we love others. So Father, I just thank you and praise you for your word tonight. May it be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.